Who is this man? It's a common question regarding Jesus. It's an ancient question. Matthew 21, when Jesus was entering the city of Jerusalem on that day of triumph, the day that was at the head of the Passion Week, the crowds in Jerusalem gathered, and when he'd entered, the city was stirred up, and all the people said, who is this? Referring to Jesus. Luke's gospel in the ninth chapter, Herod the king wanting an audience with Jesus, wondering about him. However, Herod had just beheaded John the Baptist, and he'd heard things about Jesus, and he himself said, who is this about whom I hear so much? Who is this? In Luke chapter 5, after healing the paralytic, scribes and Pharisees, in referring to Jesus, said, who is this? who speaks blasphemies. Because Jesus had said, not only had he healed the man, but forgiven his sin. Jesus' very own disciples, in Mark chapter 4, in a small boat on the Sea of Galilee, after he had stilled the raging storm, his disciples said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man? It's an ancient question. However, as you're familiar, I'm sure it is also a very current question. Who is he? Pastor and writer Sam Storms gives the following story to kind of explain the context in which we live. He says, imagine for a moment that you host a neighborhood dinner party and tonight at your home are gathered several individuals from your neighborhood. One of them is a Mormon One is a Muslim, one is a Jehovah's Witness, one is a theological liberal, one is your immediate next-door neighbor, and you're the host. Would you like to host that party? He said that after the dinner conversation turns from politics to religion, the question comes up about Jesus. Who is this man? The Mormon is first to speak, and he says, let me tell you who Jesus was. He was the firstborn child of Elohim. He was the product of the physical union between Father God and the Virgin Mary. Don't look so shocked. God and Mary were actually husband and wife, and they conceived and bore Jesus. And the good news is is that if we work hard enough, we can be like Jesus too. The Muslim protests He immediately speaks up and says, no, no, you've got it all wrong. Jesus is just like Abraham and Moses and Isaiah. He was a prophet of God. He himself not God. In fact, he wasn't even the most important of the prophets. Muhammad was, who lived 500 years after Jesus. Besides, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. As Christians believe, he was rescued by God and carried to a safe place in heaven. And since he didn't die, there was no atonement, and Jesus didn't satisfy anything for our sin, and neither can we be promised a resurrection in him either. A Jehovah's Witness can no longer hold his peace, and he says, you're both wrong. Prior to his coming to earth, Jesus was Michael, the archangel. He's only a creature, the first product of Jehovah God's creative work. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was divested of his spiritual angelic nature and became holy and exclusively a man. A good man indeed, but definitely not God. Disgusted by what he perceives to be religious mythology and a bunch of just thinking of man that is so archaic, the theological liberal takes control of the conversation and says, I can't believe what I'm hearing. This is the 21st century. All of you talk like you're in the dark ages. Common sense alone tells us that Jesus was just the natural-born offspring of Joseph and Mary. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not an atheist. In fact, I believe that Jesus had exceptional virtue and humility and spiritual sensitivity to the point that God adopted him as his son. He endowed him with miraculous powers 
But ultimately, Jesus came to proclaim the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. At this point, your nearest next door neighbor, quite bewildered, speaks up and says, well, I always thought that Jesus was a good man. He told us to love one another. It's too bad that that he ended up getting killed like that. But as long as we all believe in God and believe in him, isn't that okay? Do we really have to split the neighborhood about this? And then it's your turn to reply. What are you going to say? I don't think it's far-fetched to imagine a conversation very similar to the one I just described occurring in first century Colossae. You have your Bible open to the book of Colossians. It was written to people living in the first century in a town called Colossae. And the reason I say such a conversation is not far-fetched to be had in that city is because we know something of what was taking place among Christian people in that city because of what Paul tells them in this book he writes to them. It appears that shortly after the church in Colossae was founded, the congregation became confused about this very question, who is Jesus? Who is this man? Apparently, a clever company of false teachers sought to replace the Colossians' enthusiastic devotion to Christ with something less approving, maybe just a mild approval of him. They didn't encourage anyone to forget Jesus entirely. Let's just not put him on a pedestal as preeminent as even God himself. According to these false teachers, it it appears that they were influenced by something that would later be noted as a teaching called Gnosticism. Knowledge is the, the, the essence of that word. And it was this concept about God, that God is a spirit. There's nothing physical about him. But, but this God had several emanations coming forth from him in the spiritual realm. And Jesus was just one of these emanations. Maybe he was one that had a certain kind of priority, but certainly he wasn't exclusive in the fact that we should look to him only for worship and put him on a pedestal above everybody else. And so you had this kind of teaching in Colossae, and undoubtedly, if not in the church itself, certainly in homes, as people talked about who is this man, they would have had conversations like I just described. Well, I think Jesus is this, and I think Jesus is this, and I think he did this, and, but he's not as, uh, quite you know, up to this. And Paul, when he writes to these people in Colossae, he addresses that confusion head on. He wants them to be certain that there is no mistake about who Jesus is. And here in the text that was read in your hearing this morning in verses 15 to 20 of the first chapter, we have what is likely one of the greatest passages in all your New Testament on who Jesus is. It is compact, and it is power, it's a power punch, as it were. It's saying, don't miss this. Let me give you a little context for this passage in the epistle. After a standard opening in the book of Colossians, verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about his praying for these people in Colossae. Verse 3, he says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Well, what kind of things does Paul pray for these people in Colossae? Look down in verse 9. And so from the day that we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking, and now he gives a list of things that he prays for them. One of those things is found in verse 10, that he's asking, uh, I'm sorry, the end of verse 9, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will for them, and they would have the spiritual wisdom. And look at the end of verse 10. He wants them to be increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, what should they know about God? Well, look down at verse 13. That God has delivered us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And now he introduces Jesus, the beloved son of God, in verse 14, and it's in him that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now you read right into verse 15, and he is the image of the invisible God. Paul begins with prayer or petition for these people, but it's almost like linked together that he moves right into praise. And he moves into praise for this one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he says, because we have that in him, this is who he is that provides that for us. As I said, this is one of the most closely reasoned passage concerning Christ in all of your Bible. And beginning in verse 15 and running through 20, he gives a litany of 14 amazing things about Jesus. I'm not going to list all 14 of them for you. But if you go through there and enumerate them, you'll find there are 14 things that he just one after another states. But what's really interesting is the form he uses to state this. You take verses 15 to 20, and they're a unit. And it's commonly believed among scholars that what we're reading here is an ancient hymn. We sang hymns this morning. We sang hymns about Jesus this morning. It's commonly believed that this is actually an ancient hymn that was probably sung among the Lord's people in the first century. Now, we don't know if... Paul, under inspiration, has actually written this hymn that was used later in the church, or if Paul is actually saying, this is what we sing in the churches, and he's drawing on that to make the point in Colossae. Either way, it's a hymn. You know what the word hymn means? It means praise. And so you have these verses, 15 to 20, that are praising God. Jesus. This hymn has two uneven stanzas. We sang stanzas this morning, right? We sang first, second, third, fourth. Well, think of this hymn like our hymn, and it has two stanzas. Let me show them to you. The first beginning in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. There's the first line of the first stanza, and now verse 16 is going to explain why that is the case. Verses 16 and 17, and that's your first stanza. The second stanza begins similarly. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. And there is your second stanza. And he's going to describe why that is the case all the way down to the end of verse 20. So you might just want to mark that in your Bible. Stanza 1, stanza 2, stanza 1, he's the image of the invisible God. Stanza 2, he is the head of the body, the church. And in those two stanzas, there are actually different emphasis. The emphasis of the second stanza is this. It has to do with Christ's relationship to his church, his body. How did that happen? Well, it had something to do with his resurrection, we're told in verse 18, firstborn from the dead. But ultimately, through all of this, verse 20, through Jesus, he would make reconciliation. He would reconcile all things to himself. The second stanza focuses on Jesus and his reconciliation or Jesus and redemption. Praise him because Jesus is our redeemer. But look at the emphasis of the first stanza. This will be our attention this morning. What's the last word of verse 15? Say it out loud. What's the last word of verse 15? Creation. Now look at verse 16. For by him all things were created. Look at the end of verse 16. All things were created through him. Okay, you tell me, what is the emphasis of the first stanza? If the second stanza is Jesus and redemption, the first stanza is Jesus and creation. 
And this is going to be our attention this morning as we give attention to this question, who is this man? We're going to find that Paul paints very clearly that Jesus is the Lord of creation. Now, my goal this morning is this, beloved. We really have to fight against this notion that we come to church and our first idea about church is what can I get out of that? What is this going to give me this week so I can get over that difficult meeting I have? What is this going to give me so that I can navigate my way through a hard relationship at home? What is this going to give me that will help me with this bad news I got from the doctor? I'm not making light of those things. Those are very pressing issues that undoubtedly are on the hearts of many people this morning. But this morning, you're going to have to fight against our temptation to be so self-centered. That what I want to be here today is I want to get something from this. Can we spend 45 minutes together just thinking about Jesus together? about what the text clearly says about him and just glorying in that. In other words, my goal here this morning is not information that you go away and say, that was great information. I hope I have that dinner party, right? So I can give that information. The goal here this morning is that all of us would walk away in admiration of who Jesus really is. At Christmas time, so much is said about Jesus, and yet there's so little understanding of who he really is. So let's just push our own thoughts aside and glory in the fact that God has told us who this man is. Where do we begin? Let's begin as the verse begins in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of of the invisible God. That's simple enough, right? Who is Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. God is a spirit. He has no physical bodily form. He's a spirit. And no one has ever seen him. In fact, in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 20, it's, it's a passage that we've referenced in the past, back in November, that passage where Moses asked to see God's glory. And he says, show me your glory. And do you remember God's response to Moses? God says, Moses, I can't do that because no one can see me and live. That's why Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he speaks of God and he says, whom no one has ever seen or can see. You cannot behold God with the physical eye. God is invisible. But here we're told that there is a kind of manifestation of this invisible God and we're told that Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. The word in the original language underlying that term image, we get our English word icon from. He's the image, icon. He's the representation, or better, the manifestation of this invisible God. In Jesus, we do see God. Now, we're told in the Bible that there are several ways that God has revealed himself to us. In the book of Romans, in the first chapter, and in the 19th Psalm as well, the Bible tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. You can look at what God has made in creation and, and see something about him. In Romans chapter 1, we're told that people actually hold that down and want to deny that truth. However, when Jesus came to earth... 
he came in a way that was more explicit than any of those other ways. And he makes God known in particular ways. In fact, look at how some other biblical writers state this. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, we read this at the beginning of our sermon this morning, or at the beginning of our worship, we're told of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. What do you mean the exact imprint of his nature? Think of imprinting. It's like, it's like a die, a cast die on a coin as it stamps a coin and it leaves the image there. It's an exact representation of that die. Think of of a seal on wax. You heat the wax and you take the seal, maybe from a ring, and you press it into that wax and you're leaving the exact imprint of that seal. What the writer of Hebrews is saying that when you look at Jesus, you see the imprint of God's nature on a human being in human form. Now again, he doesn't mean that God has a body, but he means that you see something of God in Jesus. What is it that you see? This God who's invisible and has no body, he's not referring to his physical characteristics, but rather Jesus is the substance and character of God. So for instance, when you read of Jesus in the Gospels, and you read of his love, and you see his wisdom, and you read of his compassion, and you read of his justice, and you read of his holiness and his earnestness and yet his patience and his goodness, what you're seeing is the reflection of God. This is how God is. This is his character. This is exactly what God would do in this situation. You're seeing the imprint of his nature. In fact, John chapter 1, John the Apostle says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The only God there is a referring to Jesus, that He was with the Father in the beginning, and He has, the word is exegete. He's made Him known. He's, he's demonstrated in real time what God is like. Now, here's what I find fascinating. In this first stanza of the hymn in Colossae that focuses on creation, Paul talks about an image. Do you think that's coincidental? What was God's intent in the original creation? Go with me back to Genesis chapter 1. If you've been with us on Sunday evenings, we've actually been looking at this together through the Bible, and we'll do it again tonight. Genesis chapter 1 records for us the creation account where God speaks all things into existence. On the sixth day, God makes man. And you remember what God said in verse 26 of Genesis 1? Then God said, let us make man in our what? Our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, both of them bear that image. He created them. This was God's original plan, that there would be God, and he would reveal himself, the God who has no body and physical form, yet he would create mankind in his likeness, and that mankind could demonstrate what we call the communicable attributes of God. And how mankind exercised his dominion over everything that God had made would be just like God would do it. But what happened? Well, you'll have to come back tonight to get the rest of that story. Because we're going to talk about the fall of man. And how that image was defaced, but not erased. And now when you come to Colossians chapter 1, and Paul is talking about creation, and he says, guess what? Adam was to demonstrate who God is. Adam was to image God, and he failed. But guess what? There's somebody who didn't. A true human being. 
Jesus Christ who took humanity upon himself, full humanity, and Jesus Christ came and he displayed who God is to people. He perfectly imaged God. What does that mean for us? Just think of it in these terms, beloved. Jesus in his humanity is what you and I were meant to be. You and I were meant to love like him and care like him and grieve like him and be filled with anger at times like he was. We were made to image God in this way. And this is part of the process of what God is doing in all of us if you know Jesus Christ. He's actually restoring us to that image. Paul speaks of this. Look back in Colossians in chapter 3. Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, or, or what is not like God in you, this sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Those things aren't like Jesus. They're not like God. In fact, on account of those things, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 8, But now you must put them all away, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Those things don't image God. They image the seed of the serpent, Satan. Instead, look at verse 10. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the what? Image of its creator. He says, here's what God is doing in you. This image that has been defaced, he's actually working in you to restore you to what you ought to be, a true image bearer of God in the best sense. The point is that in Christ, the invisible God became visible. He shared the same substance as God. He made his communicable attributes known, his holy character. And when you look at Jesus, you see who God is. Well, Paul goes on from there in chapter 1 and verse 15. What's the second thing that he says about Jesus? If you're going to list these, this is the first stanza. He says, number one, he is the image of of this invisible God, and he's what? What does it say? The firstborn of what? All creation. Okay, do you have a problem with that? We read that term in Hebrews chapter 1. It's actually used several time in your new, times in your New Testament. The firstborn of all creation. I want us to note several things about what Paul says here and what he doesn't say. Paul uses the term firstborn. Let me get us the right slide here. He's the firstborn of all creation. Paul uses the term firstborn, not first created. He could have. There's a term for that in ancient Greek that he could have used, and he could have very easily said Jesus was the first created if that's what he wanted to communicate. But he didn't. He intentionally used this term firstborn. Born. Now, what does it mean he's firstborn? What does it mean to be a firstborn? When you hear firstborn, what do you think of? You think of birth order, right? If you have more than one child, one child then, then the, the first one is the firstborn. And it can literally mean the first to come from the womb. In fact, this term is used that way in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 when it speaks of Mary that she brought forth her firstborn child. By the way, what does that tell you about Jesus? He had brothers and sisters, right? At least brothers, we know. And Jesus was the first of them. And that term there is referring to birth order from Mary. Okay? However, this term is also used metaphorically to signify honor, rank, or status. 
Now, these two ideas commonly went hand in hand. For instance, the firstborn in the Jewish family would be the one who would have the highest rank or status in the family. That's the way it worked culturally. The firstborn would be the one who would receive really half of the father's inheritance, the vast majority of it. Any other children, the rest of it would be divided up among them. And that firstborn, he received the rank in that he would be the one to carry on the spiritual and religious formation of the family. That was his rank. That was his responsibility. He was the firstborn. However, the firstborn from the womb or firstborn child did not always have this rank or status. In fact, when you read that in the Bible, it's kind of a recurring theme. Think with me of Isaac and Ishmael. You know those names? Who was Abraham's firstborn, Isaac or Ishmael? Ishmael. But was he the one that claimed the promise? Was he the one that received the place of honor and rank? No. God said explicitly, it will be Isaac and not Ishmael. What about Jacob and Esau? I mean, they're twins, right? So which one was the firstborn? Which one was the first to come out? Esau. But who would be the one that would receive the honor and the rank? It would be Jacob. And God had said, the elder will serve the younger. So the younger will be like that one in the firstborn position. Think of Manasseh and Ephraim in the day of Joseph. But here's one I really want to point out to you. Look at the 89th Psalm. Look at Psalm 89. This psalm is attributed to Ethan the Ezraite. And he is singing of the Lord's faithfulness to all generations. And oftentimes he's quoting the Lord and and what the Lord has promised and the the promises that he has made. And he said, God is fulfilling these. He's, He's making these promises. He's making good on these promises. And look at Psalm 89 and just notice with me, we're going to jump right into the context. Verse 20, it's like God speaking here. And Psalm 89, 20 says this. God says, I have found David my servant With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. God says, I've chosen David. And he's referring to this covenant that God had made with David. Now here's what's interesting. Look at verse 27. Speaking still of David, God says this. And I will make him the what? Firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Let me ask you, was David a firstborn, literally? No, remember the story of Samuel when God said, Samuel, I've chosen a king after my own heart. Saul has failed, and I want you to go, and I want you to anoint a king. And he sent him to David's hometown, the sons of Jesse. Samuel goes there, and and he's looking around, and he's looking at these sons of Jesse, and he sees the oldest. Do you remember his name? Eliab was his name. And Samuel's probably looking at him and saying, here's a guy with carriage. Here's a guy with with a chiseled jaw. This guy looks like a king. And he's the firstborn of Jesse. And he's going to anoint Jesse. And what does God tell him? That's not it. In fact, Samuel goes through several sons of Jesse to where Samuel thinks he's at the end of the line, and he says, none of these are it. God hasn't chosen any of these. And you remember what they said? Jesse says, well, I do have a younger son. He's keeping those sheep. He's the errand boy today. And and Samuel goes and finds him, and God says, this is the one. David was not the firstborn, the first to open the womb, but David would receive the place of honor and rank. And this is how that term is used in Psalm 89. 
And now go back with me to Colossians chapter 1. And when we read this about Jesus, he is the firstborn of all creation. It's not saying that he was the first created thing in in time, in chronology. It's saying he is the preeminent one. He is of the highest rank. He gets this status. Now, I do need to explain something here because you might also say this. Well, we're talking about Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. Maybe he was created by God and he just happens to be the preeminent one of all of that. And just to get technical for just a moment, you know about prepositions, right? You know, you can do a lot of study on prepositions in the Bible. You see this little preposition of He's the firstborn of all creation. Well, when you read a preposition like that, it can mean, it can mean several different things. <clears throat> and you might be tempted to read this and say, well, he's the firstborn out of all creation, right? So you have this creation, and he's just the first one among it. He's still created. He's just that preeminent one. However, this little preposition that's translated of right here is also translated elsewhere in your Bible Translated with the term over. In fact, in in the two translations that I use most, the New American Standard Bible and our English Standard Version, they both use of, and I think they do us a disservice. Because if you read this in the New King James Version, or the Christian Standard Bible, or the New International Version, or the New English Translation, they give it, they put it this way. He is the firstborn over all creation. And that really is the sense of what is being communicated here. It's not that Jesus is a part of creation and preeminent. It's he has this status because he's over it all. He gets the highest place. He has supremacy in this. Now, here's our question. We'll move through these last quickly. If Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, why is that the case? Why is he over it? Look at verse 16. What's the first word? Another preposition. What's the first word? For. Okay, we go over this a lot. When you read your Bible, you need to mark these things. It's okay to write in your Bible. You should. What is that communicating? <clears throat> he's just said Jesus is over all creation, and now he's going to argue for that. You could put the word because in there. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, and here's why. Let me tell you. He's going to give us three things why Jesus should be perceived as the Lord over all creation. Here's the first, verse 16. For by him all things were created. What does that tell you about Jesus? He's the what? Creator. And here's what's really interesting. In my Bible, I have a little number six next to that word by in verse 16. And it directs me to the margin. And it tells me you can also translate that not only as by, but in. Another one of these prepositions. In fact, it's the same construction down in verse 19 where we read, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So so really what Paul is saying here is saying he's the firstborn of all creation. Why? Because in him all these things were created. Now, our translators have said by because it's the idea of agency. He's the one that created. But I think it's better understood this way. Creation began in Jesus. In other words, he's the one that dreamed it up. He didn't consult anybody about what you see. It was in him. 
Let me illustrate it this way. When, when you want to do something creative, and you're a lady, my wife tells me this, okay? Sometimes you look for help with creativity, and you go on Pinterest. And you see a board, is that right? And, and, or you see decorations and you say, see way things, way people have creatively done things and you look at that and you say, I hadn't thought of doing it that way. That's very creative. And that didn't stem from inside of you and your own creativity. You borrowed that from somebody, which is perfectly fine. Guys, you go to YouTube. I do. And I look up something on YouTube and I say, I never thought of doing it that way. There's a life hack, right? I mean, why didn't I think of that before? That's very creative in how they do that. There's, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? <laughs> Literally. Sorry. Just came to mind, honest. But, but that's creativity that's not inside of me. It's outside of me, and I'm borrowing it. Here's what Paul is saying. Jesus relied on nobody. All the vast, the the vastness of creation that you see from the clouds overhead to the microorganism you can't see with the naked eye was all in him. He's creative. I went out on my my back deck this morning before church. It was a warm morning and, and looked out there and I looked at the crows in the trees and the squirrels on the ground and I looked at uh, the beautiful hemlock trees and the, the little stream that flows in the back there and I was just amazed and I said, Jesus, you dreamed all of this up and you spoke it into existence. Your your preeminent over all of it because it all came from inside of you. This is your canvas. And notice what came from him. Verse 16, for for in him All things were created. And in case you're you're misunderstanding about what all things includes, he says, in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible. And then he says, whether it's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And he uses something called chiasmus here when he says, he gets all things together. He says, on earth or in heaven, visible, invisible. And he's kind of painting this picture and he's saying, you can't get outside of that. He's included everything in that. And then he says that Jesus also created thrones, dominions, and authorities, and powers. And by that, Paul is referring to spirits, angelic beings, those confirmed in righteousness and those fallen. Jesus isn't one of them. He's over them. He made them. And then he ends this 16th verse this way. All things were created through him and what? For him. This is the ultimate end of all things. They're meant to point back to him. They're meant to display something about him. They all have this purpose. That's your purpose. And do you know why you get so frustrated in life? Because you forget that purpose. And you live for things that don't honor him. Or you forget about him. And your life is confusing and hard and in turmoil. And you think, why can't I just figure this out? It's because you were made by him and through him and for him. And until you come to that in your heart of hearts, you'll always be frustrated in a dying world. 
Jesus is the originator of creation. He is the goal of creation. But notice verse 17. And he is before all these things. Why would he say that? He's before all these things, okay? Let's, let's do a little English lesson here. He's been talking about all things. He described what they are in verse 16, heaven, earth, visible, invisible, even the angelic company. And he says he's before all these things. What does the all these things refer to? All those things he just mentioned in verse 16. All created things. And here's another preposition. Jesus is in what relationship to all of those created things, even the angelic beings? He is before them. Giving the indication that you have all these things of creation, this is one category, but Jesus is in this other category before them. In other words, there's really only two categories, beloved. There's things created and things uncreated. Who's in the uncreated category? God. Your Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God. There's your category, uncreated. You know what the rest of the Bible says? That uncreated being did this, created. All things, heaven, earth, invisible, angelic beings. Paul says, guess what category Jesus is in? Before all these things, he was. He has the priority because he is in the other category. And finally, he says this. Look at verse 17. He's before all things, and in him, in Jesus, all things what? Hold together. Pretty sure I've mentioned this before, but scientists are mystified when they get on the subatomic level and they start looking at, at cells and they start looking at atoms, and, and they're somewhat mystified at the fact that certain atoms just stay together, that they hold together. That when you count the number of protons and neutrons and you consider the, the nuclear density or whatever, they, they do their formula things. And, and, and in some cases, they come to the point and they say, it doesn't really make sense that all of this holds together and doesn't just fly apart, but it does. All we can do is observe and say, it, it really shouldn't. They, these things should repel each other and fly apart, but they, but they don't. And the best thing that they can come up with is they'll say things like, well, the strong, attractive nuclear force outweighs the repulsive electromagnetic force. And they'll say there's this kind of gravity and the nuclear force and the electromagnetic force, and you say, okay, describe to me the strong, attractive nuclear force. What is it? Well, it's, it's the attraction of the nucleus and the force that it gives in gravity. Okay, what is that? Well, it, it, it just does. It, it just attracts. And, and you keep digging under the surface and under the surface and under the surface, and they're like, we can't explain it, it just does. Okay, when I read my Bible, it doesn't tell me it does, it tells me who does. That, 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 that Jesus is upholding all of this by the word of his power. And there's coming a day when, when those elements will melt with a fervent heat, as Peter says. And that will be Jesus just saying, I'm going to let it go. You are held together right now by one who was the baby in the manger. Do you know that? If, if he were just to let go, there would be nothing. Nothing. 
what do we learn in this stanza about Jesus? Jesus is Lord of all creation, and he alone is worthy of your worship. Again, the value in our taking this exercise and going through this stanza is not located in the practical implications of this. Okay, what does this mean for me in my nine-to-five job this week? What does this mean to me as I'm watching kids? What does this mean to me as I'm going to the Christmas party on Friday? The value of this is simply that this truth is designed to buckle our knees and get us on our face before one who is worthy of our worship and highest admiration and praise. You were made for this. I was made for this. You were made to be in awe of certain things. And your awe of things shapes you. What you truly worship and see valuable shapes you. It shapes your life. It it demands your thoughts. It pulls at your attention and the affections of your heart. And if you are in awe of this material world, with all of its glitter and all of its fancy and the bigger house and the nicer car and the greater vacations, that's going to shape you. You're in all of those things, and you're constantly grasping them. And once I finally get them, I will be satisfied in my heart. And you find that when you have them, it only turns your gaze to the next great thing. And it shapes how you think and how you live, and you're constantly frustrated in your pursuit of fulfillment because your awe is in the wrong place. And you are in awe of your reputation, and you do everything to protect your own reputation and make sure that you appear just right before people, and nobody sees the chinks in your armors, and you guard that very carefully so that some people will have a great estimation of who you are, only to realize that there's some people that don't care who you are, and you're frustrated because your awe is in the wrong place. You and I should be in awe of Jesus. And when we are, it shapes us. It shapes how I think. It shapes how I live. It shapes what I say. It changes your life. And this is Paul's message to the Colossians. Get over the dinner conversation. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Because he created it all. He sustains it all. He's before it all. And worship him. Will you? Will you spend any time this week outside of these few moments worshiping him? God's grace, we will. Let's pray together.